It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there's a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. Welcome to the Chronicles of Podcast, where we are doing a chapter-by-chapter chapter deep dive into the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. My name is Kel. And I'm Chase. And thank you so much for joining us today. Just a reminder that we are going to be talking about the second book in the series of Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But general spoiler warning for the Narnia series as a whole, and a heads up that we are going to probably talk about things from other pieces of pop culture uh, and we'll try to give you a spoiler alert for anything too egregious along the way. Uh, but today, we are going to be discussing Chapter 15 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Deeper Magic from Before the Dawn of Time. We had deep magic. We got we got to go deeper. We, this is Inception. We, this is Inception yeah, magic. It's, a, it's magic within magic before the dawn of time. Uh, all right. Chase, well, can you give us I, a summary? I'm going to summarize this chapter for us. All right, so Lucy and Susan are still hiding in the bushes as the witch declares that now that Aslan is dead, they're going to finish what's left of this war. The great crowd rushes off of the hilltop, leaving the girls to creep out and see the body of Aslan for themselves. They cry as they remove the muzzle from the lion's face. They try to pull off the cords he's bound with, but they're so tight they couldn't move the knots and they just continue to cry and grieve until the sun begins to rise. And then they begin to notice something small moving on the ground by their feet. Little gray mice. At first the girls try to shoo them away, but then they realize that they're chewing off the bindings on Aslan's body. They clear away the ropes, and as the sun continues to rise, the light makes Aslan's face all the more noble. At this point, the girls are getting cold and decide to walk around a bit to warm up. They did so till their legs grew tired and they stand and watch the sky grow from red to gold over Care Paravel by the sea. And as they watch, they suddenly hear a loud cracking sound. They turn, found the stone table broken in two pieces and Aslan gone. And they're distressed and thinking someone had taken the body or maybe it was more magic. And at this, a voice says, yes, it is more magic. And they turn around and see him, Aslan, standing in the sunrise, looking larger than before, his mane regrown. The girls are shocked, asking if Aslan was dead or, or a ghost, trying to figure out what happened. Aslan explains that there is a deeper magic than what the witch knew from before time began. And he said that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery, was killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table would crack and death itself would begin to work backwards. Aslan then jumps very high in the air, because why not? And they play a game of tag, because nothing else important is going on today. Uh, and now that they're all bros, 
the girls climb onto Aslan's back and they run very fast across Narnia and find themselves looking over the witch's house, which now looks small and unimposing. They enter into the courtyard full of statues and that's where our chapter ends. Face the theme of this chapter's podcast, uh, death to life, a new hope, uh, or as I like to uh, refer to this chapter, the chapter where C.S. Lewis shows that he has absolutely no cool. He is that's, that's zero cool. chill. Because uh, after this huge, momentous, uh, crazy death of Aslan that happens, you would think, oh, maybe we should let this simmer and sit with the reader for a while. Nope. And that's basically how he responds. I mean, Jason. why would you? Why would you pace this book in any way that you know, <laughs> makes sense? Having finished this book off screen or off podcast, we, the pacing, we have to get back to walking, Kel. The pacing That's of this book, this pacing of this book is absurd. This book is 17 chapters long. Chapter 14, Aslan dies. Chapter 15, Aslan comes back to life. Chapter 16, the majority of it, spoiler alert, if you have not read chapter 16 yet, uh, chapter 16 is predominantly them setting statues free. And at the very end, there's a battle. And then chapter 17, the battle's over. There is, like, it's it's bad. There is uh, no battle. The, man, the movie was wrong. It, it, like, this is, it feels rushed and, like, just weird. I, I don't know what he's doing. It, like, it, it starts with this chapter title, Chase. Because two chapter titles ago was Deep Magic from Before the Dawn of Time. And this one is Deeper Magic from Before the Dawn. It's like, think of something more clever, please. It's- <laughs> Wait, that is clever, Kel. Don't you get it? It was oh. deep magic. Now it's deeper magic. Ah, it's the Jesus juke. He's going, ah, I gotcha. Right? Uh, it's, it's, it's tough. But as we dive into the chapter, the it starts off with the witch and her people, her creatures and her followers saying, ah, now we'll go win what remains of this war. First of all, like the war hasn't, started like there's only one battle yeah so like a war seems a little bit you know excessive uh but then they're like now now we can really crush the human vermin they're three children four children uh and the like now that the traitor the great fool the great cat is dead well i mean he's dead for now he won't be for you know another eight pages maybe I mean, but, it'll be long enough for them to have an all-day-long battle. I guess. But, like, where are they, Chase? I mean, they're, so they're at the stone table. Where are they battling? The, who, like, geography. Who knows? Geography is a real sus. We travel is. across the country and back today. Yeah. Uh, it, dude, but we I, take our time to have a game of tag. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll get to that because I got lots of thoughts. But, so as yeah. the... As the followers of the witch are rushing out, the children, the the two girls, Susan and Lucy, are very scared, as they should be. Yeah, Uh, at this moment, the children were, for a few seconds, in very great danger. Yeah, I mean, it only takes a few seconds for this huge whatever, uh, this, like, group of evildoers to run by. But it says they felt the specters, i.e., like, ghosts, go by them like a cold wind. Did the specters just ignore that there were two human girls ignore like hiding in the bush? Like, no, 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 Kel, this is a cartoon. 
where the stampede comes at them, but they just duck and cover their head. And then the and then cloud of up. dust yeah. goes by and they're just still there crouched down. Ah, they went for the like happens. hide behind the single log in a in an avalanche uh tactic of of avoiding being killed. But you didn't see them and turn themselves into a stone and stump? <laughs> it was really hard to miss. Uh <laughs> I you know, you you wonder why we would miss something like that. You but, would have been surprised to see that they had that power count. Yeah, but now, now that all these creatures have, you know, ran past these inconspicuous, uh, like human girls hiding for their lives, now the sadness and shame and horror of Aslan's death really can fill their minds, and it sits on them heavy, uh, yeah. at least for the next seven pages. Yeah, which I mean, a huge chunk of this chapter is, and honestly. I do love that they take their time yeah. with grief in this chapter. Like C.S. Lewis yeah. has a lot of flaws when it comes to pacing, as we've talked about. He spends way too long on, on important things and way too little on super important things. But I actually think he nailed this part. Like yeah. we get to see two young women process the death of a loved one, the one who they thought was going to be their savior. So, uh, just full transparency for where I'm coming from reading this chapter. I had to put down my dog a couple days ago, like this week. It's very fresh. He was old and couldn't walk. And it was his time as painful as it was and is, but like the way they stopped to just kind of feel Aslan's fur and kiss his face and cry. Like it's so real. And like, yeah. it's also necessary. Yeah. <laughs> like, Maybe it's just because I've done these exact things with an animal I cared about this week, but I really appreciate this scene. And I mean, we'll talk about it more later and further up and further in, but I like that he doesn't hold back on that. Absolutely. I mean, his, the next couple pages, starting with their description of like, as the moon's getting low and they can see Aslan's shape getting uh, a little bit, uh, more clear as the sun's starting to peak up and they kneel down and they're, you know, it's really, it's really good imagery. It's really beautiful. And then it starts going into this description of how miserable they are. And it's a really interesting, um, like you said, like this description of grief in fantasy, especially early fantasy, this is not necessarily a common thing. Yeah. Right. Like this is this is probably one of the earlier attempts to try to write and understand grief and depression. Uh, he, he says, I hope no one who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night. But if you have been, if you've been up all night and cried till you have no more tears left in you, you will know that there comes in the end a sort of quietness. You feel as if nothing was ever going to happen again. At any rate. That was how it felt to these two. It's kind of that that description of when you're so sad and so overwhelmed with emotion that you get numb. You have so many things that are feeling that you can't feel anything. It's that stillness, that quietness that he's talking about. And I really, I really appreciate him trying to understand depression, especially like you know him and Tolkien and other you know, writers of the time being survivors of war. And yeah. being people who have suffered with PTSD and other sort of illnesses that weren't really understood at the time. Oh, yeah. And especially when you think about the markers of the greatest generation, the generation that went through wartime. And a lot of it 
the things that people say make them so great is the fact that they white knuckle through painful things and kind of stuff that stuff down, put it aside and keep grinding to build things and start stuff and make money and, and all the stuff like post-war economy stuff that gets, gets credited to them. I mean, that kind of seems antithetical to vulnerability and acknowledgement of grief and pain and darkness. It's uh, it, it really is. It, it's meaningful. Yeah. Especially when you got to remember his audience is kids and he's trying to help, you know, kids understand like, Hey, your emotions are valid and your, the things you're feeling are real and powerful. And, um, and like, they can really hurt. And sometimes like you can't just get over something like, you can't just tell people, hey, suck it up, rub some dirt on it. Like, that's not how that's not how life works. And so I do really appreciate this about C.S. Lewis in this moment. Yeah. And it's it's really good. Which also, when you zoom out to what this fits into with the, the biblical allegory that this is, like, this is the Mary and Mary chapter, right? Yeah. Like, like C.S. Lewis writes this so that the witnesses to Aslan's execution and resurrection are the women, like the some very biblical thing. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus were the ones said to have gone to the tomb and found it empty. But I really like that he brings in the uh, like reality of the grief that comes with the death mm-hmm. of Aslan, like in the Christian story, like in the stuff that we deal with on, on that front, we don't always acknowledge that there were a few days of sadness in between the uh yeah between good friday and easter sunday there was a really really sad saturday yeah yeah i think it's called dark saturday in christian tradition there there's some like liturgical name we were but we were considering like you know you have the the imagery of like the cross and then the imagery of the tomb like being open and Jesus like resurrecting is like, it's probably a good thing that there's not a lot of imagery of just like dead Jesus, like chilling. There's, yeah. That's not a, that's not a popular statue or artwork piece. Yeah. But also, even if you think of why Mary and Mary were going to the tomb, they were going to continue like treating yeah. his body. Like they were going like the imagery of Lucy and Susan, like, unwrapping Aslan's like bindings and taking his uh, his muzzle, like all that stuff really does fit into what, what's happening here and the oracle part of it, which. Absolutely. And I think this is, you're, you're hitting into when you're thinking of allegory and like getting into the theological aspect of this, this is a a really important part of CSO's communicating the passion story of saying, there is a physically dead Aslan, like just as there was a, like Jesus literally physically died. You could feel his body. People saw his body and knows, knew that he was dead. Uh, and like later on, like as we'll, we'll get to in a little bit. So I don't want to you know jump to that conversation yet. Like they'll talk about him being physically alive. He's not a specter, or a ghost of some sort, but he's physically alive and so that's it's like there was both a physical death and a physical resurrection of jesus and of aslan um and as you're you know referring to the 
like sadness aspect of this, Lucy internally asked herself this question, what did it matter? Nothing mattered now. And that's really depressing, but that's accurate. Like that's how you should feel if Aslan slash Jesus is dead and you don't understand that he's going to come back. Uh, Because you'd be like, well, the guy I was following, the, the dude who I was putting all of my faith and hope in is now dead. Granted, yeah. all of the followers of Jesus should have been aware that he was going to come back from the dead, but they've never seen that happen before. So why would and they expect to see it again? Like a handful of times. Very and, you know, exactly scripture, you know, the entire Old Testament probably speaks to it as well. But that's whatever. Uh, you know, the, the fact is they've never seen someone resurrect themselves. So yeah. why would they expect to see it again? And it's this, you know, concept of like, yeah, it is it is pointless. Everything is pointless if this person is not alive. Yeah. Uh, in most other cases, the revolution would die with the leader. Yeah, absolutely. Case. But thank goodness, Chase, that the revolution doesn't die with this leader because Susan and Lucy are there to unmuzzle the great cat and a bunch of little mice are there. How beastly, says Susan. Yeah, uh, so beastly. Which, so like, beastly. Kind of hundreds of mice. Hundreds. Yeah. Think about that for a second. Even if the mice are good guys, like even it's if it's terrifying. the tale of Despero, hundreds of mice. I I had what I thought was a mouse in the kitchen of a house I was selling a few weeks back, and I'm not going to tell that whole story on pod because it was traumatizing. But even the thought, no. <laughs> did did I tell you about this? I feel nope. like I told you about this. Nope. Did I tell but you about just... squirrel? Uh, you did not, but I, I like to imagine you just being terrified of it. Oh, I, when, when I still thought it was a mouse, that it was terrifying. Now multiply that by hundreds of hundreds. Months. Plus, how did they know that Aslan was coming back? Like, is Aslan ghost telepathying the mice? Do um, the mice, the mice know think... the deeper magic? You know, while while Aslan was dead, I'm pretty sure his spirit went and visited the, uh, you know, the the resting place of these mice. Uh, you know, if we're going to continue this allegory, who knows what Jesus did? Exactly. Yeah. It's a it's a whole thing. Wait, uh, but isn't a lot of the imagery for what Jesus did next chapter? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. My bad. Uh, maybe this just has nothing to do allegory wise, and he just needed some way to uh, rip all the ropes and stuff off of. Off of Aslan yeah. because Wait, Susan and Lucy couldn't. You remember in the Bible the knife when, that Susan or that Lucy has, or you know whatever. You remember in the Bible when a bunch of mice gathered up and rolled away the stone from the tomb. Ah, the mice are Joseph of Arimathea, and the you know the people who like took and prepared Jesus's body for the tomb. Ah, now it makes sense. Yes, of they, men. Yes, uh, Nicodemus, the the Pharisee that had that conversation with Jesus because he was like a mouse in humility to Jesus. Now it makes sense. I get it. Well, I get it. Actually, I, I don't know if you knew this, Kel, but uh, the story of Nicodemus is actually the basis for the movie Ratatouille. Ah, yes. He is like Linguini and Jesus is the, what's the rat's name? I could not tell you to say. We're going to call him Rat uh, because it's a gross concept. Look, uh, there, there's G- a crowd of cats that keep trying to break into my house, and I call them all cat. 
Like they don't have <laughs> names in my mind. They shouldn't because they're straight. But uh, well, so all of these mice, cats, they just think they live inside my house. One of them literally got into my bedroom yesterday. Gross. It's I'm a. I found out that apparently I'm allergic to this cat because I did not feel good afterward. That just seems like not good. Uh, I've been lots of animal problems lately. It's uh, it's a but good news is Aslan isn't having animal problems because these mice are here to help. And so they untie him and they get rid of all of his ropes and the girls get his muzzle off and they clear away all the ropes. And now it looks like Aslan is looking more and more like himself in every moment. His dead face looks more noble, and as the light grew, they could see it better. Chase, this is your one line of foreshadowing that uh, that C.S. Lewis is going to give you about Aslan's resurrection. Enjoy it while it lasts, because that's it. Yeah. I mean, at least we get some more walking. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this, because they... The girls are crying, and then Lucy says, I'm so cold. Susan says, so am I. Let's walk about a bit. The only reason that they go on a walk is so that Aslan can resurrect off screen, and it, they don't have to explain what it looked like or how it happened. Yeah, that's fair. But I, there's so much time killing in this chapter. Man. Like, there's so, so much of there's just, There's so like, much time killing in a chapter... <laughs> Where there's watch a battle the going on. We watch yeah. each color that the sky changes, but not all at once, in separate paragraphs. It's it's rough. It's there's literal people dying right now. Like Aslan's followers are dying in a battle because they're wasting time. But whatever. So they go to take a walk. Aslan, or something happens, we don't know. There's a giant, you know, cracking, deafening noise. Uh, and this is the description. It's like as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. And this gave me real like middle schooler trying to use imagery in an essay vibes. Where it's like the red apple was very red. And it's like, yeah, that, that'll do it. Like The giant looked giant and stomped around. The giant plate. <laughs> yeah, that's, I was like, for someone who's such a good writer, that... It seems like a really weird, like, choice of words to use here. But the girls ignore the giant plate cracking under a giant's arms. And they turn around and see, oh, no, the stone table has cracked in half. And Aslan is nowhere to be gone. Someone probably took his body, Chase. Yeah, probably. Or maybe it's more magic. I wonder. Is it more magic? Yes, said a grace voice. Is that Aslan's walk-up music? yeah so one of my favorite harry potter podcasts is really caught up on there's one moment in book five when harry and the gang are in the ministry of magic and harry's like well voldemort can't do that and then voldemort appears dramatically says can't i potter and that's like his walking music like the whole setup punchline, like walking in on the punchline is so sitcom. It's so good. I love so you know good. Voldemort is waiting like behind one of the pillars in the Ministry of Magic, going, I gotta wait for the right moment. Oh, I've waited no. so long to be able to kill Harry Potter. I can wait a few moments more 
for a better entrance. Voldemort is all about, Voldemort is all about flair. Maybe not he, the best planner, but man, he's got some style. He really is a drama queen. And it's yeah. like reading those he's super books, extra. He's he's so extra. Like Voldemort was a theater kid, let's be real. He was definitely. I mean, how do you explain the entire graveyard scene in Goblet of Fire? Not to say he's he's extra. But kill the spell. Kill the spell. That's one of my favorite quotes, and I will regularly quote it to people, and they'll go, "Wait, what?" Is that uh, what you but say say to your students. That's I have said that to my <laughs> students before. That's your D now policy. That's my D now theme. <laughs> But it's uh, but that's a Harry Potter podcast. This Chase is a Chronicles of Narnia podcast, and we're here to talk about Aslan being a little extra uh, because he but, is going to wait for the the girls to make some mention of magic, and he goes, "It was more magic." And they looked around, and his silhouette is gorgeous in the rising sun. He's shaking his mane that's grown back magically, and. And oh no, a g- 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 ghost. <laughs> I it, it this is this is a hilarious little like like way to communicate what we mentioned earlier that Aslan is physically alive. This is not his spirit, this is not a ghost. This is so Lucy goes, Aren't you dead, Aslan? Which like I get the sentiment, but ask a different question. Ask, like, didn't you die? Weren't you dead? Like, you seem to be alive now. Like, aren't you dead? It's a weird way to phrase this. Uh, but then Aslan goes, not now. And it's like, okay. And then Luce, Susan goes, you're not a, not a, and she couldn't get herself to say the word ghost. Ghost? <laughs> Real Scooby-Doo vibes here. Why, why is the word ghost so weird? And so, like, she goes, you're not a, not a, and Aslan goes, do I look it? Aslan, explain yourself. Why? Aslan's doing the full comedy set now. And, and like, so they, 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 like Lucy's like, oh, you're real. You're real, Aslan. Thank the Lord. Who is you, I guess? And they, you know, go around and touch his fur. And, you know, this is, this is, uh, they got to wrap in Doubting Thomas in there somewhere, uh, being able to like touch Jesus's hands and, uh, his wounds. So this is that moment. So although the difference Susan. here is that Aslan is not about to keep his wounds, he's about to regrow yep. his mane instantly. Yep. yep. Why? Why prove that you are a resurrected being? Uh, and we'll get to that uh, in a couple chapter in the next chapter. But um, yeah, so it's a it's a whole thing uh, that like he he's just back. And then Susan asks what I think every reader is asking. Susan is more often than not the voice of the reader going, but what does it mean? Great question, Susan. Don't worry about it. Let me jump in the air. (laughs) Well, before he jumps in the air, he gives us the quote that we started the chapter with. Basically just like in one paragraph, kind of yada yada-ing the whole situation. They don't ask any more questions about this, but Aslan basically goes, well, the witch thought she knew deep magic that all traitors belonged to her, but I knew deeper magic because while she was there for the beginning of Narnia, I was there before the dawn of time, which is a weird, like, if there's nothing there, what he goes, she would have seen 
she would have read a different incantation where Aslan nothing exists. Why? <laughs> like, but she, if she would have known this deeper magic, she would have known that a willing, uh, like a willing victim who had committed no treachery could die on behalf of the traitor. So, yeah, and Aslan then the table just, would be broken and death be reversed. Yeah, Aslan just found an extra level of Super Saiyan, and the witch is just standing there. <gasps> that's that's not possible. It's impossible. Yeah, it's uh, like Ooh, this is 9, all. 000. This is all the explanation you get. We don't yeah. know why, like this works. We like does this like Aslan doesn't even like clarify that it had to be him, which like. It had to be him. Yeah. But could could the kids have died on behalf of their of their sibling? According to Aslan, sure. It's just as long as you weren't a traitor. Um, I do love the phrasing though of death itself will begin to work backwards. Yeah. That's just a good line. That's a good one. The last enemy to be defeated will be death. Quote Harry Potter, quote, the Bible. Yeah. True. Amen. So, amen. Uh, but it, like you, uh, you mentioned off pod, this is a good moment for, for Aslan to remember, to like help the reader recognize that the real enemy in all of this is death, right? Like Satan, as much as you dunked on dualism, like there is no like cosmic battle of good and evil because Jesus wins always. The, the thing that we are as humans like fighting against is ultimately death and we need something to help us conquer death. And that's the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. Because if you're dead, you can't fly. That's true because man. Yes. Now children, I feel my strength coming back to me. Children catch me if you can. And he jumps into the air and they have a great time playing tag and running around. And such a romp Why? has never been had except in Narnia. <laughs> What's the point of this? Do we have time for this? What? There the are people dying. No. Literal death. Dying right now. Your followers are dying. Your brother is in the midst of battling the White Witch. So it is currently sunrise, so they could realistically get to the battle, end it now before anyone gets like, yeah, no one else needs to be hurt here. No one, and we know that Aslan could end all of the battle just himself, but that's not what they're gonna do because after you know playing in such a silly and fun way and Lucy couldn't tell if it was like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten could be either the answer it's probably closer to thunderstorm uh but like as it's like now to business you think Aslan like you couldn't have moved a little quicker no no this is this is what we needed we needed to uh we needed to become bros we needed to have have some fun have a I guess I Which, guess so. I mean, this is why Lucy and and Susan, but mainly Lucy, is the main like one who has relationship with Aslan sure. throughout. Like, because really, the only time they've had with them was walking through the woods and this. 
and that's that's all the insight we get to their relationship. Now they're Listen, just, Aslan, I they're know tight. my brothers I know my brothers could be dying, but I'd love to play a game of chase with you. I'd love to play a game of tag and I'd really like that. I, and Aslan's like the dude obliges. So Yeah. Aslan he he's the real. He's the real he's one. He's the real deal. But now he feels as if he's going to roar. So you better plug your ears. Uh because <laughs> and his face became terrible, and the trees were bending at the force of his roar. Q, whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Trippy, man. And so they climb on Aslan's back because it's time to go for a ride to the battle. Nope, yep. nope, nope. Not to the battle. To the witch's castle, because first things first. Let's, of course. Let's go. We, we don't have anything else to do. We're not on a tight schedule. Not, not on a tight schedule. Let's. Uh, so they just they go on a journey that lasts all day. Is what they travel for hours. They they get there at midday. At midday is crazy because again he rose from the dead at sunrise. At sunrise. So yeah. like let's say like this took like six seven a.m. six thirty somewhere around there, and they get there at like noon, which this I'm this glad they're traveling quickly. Like we've needed a fast forward button for all the walking, but this is still so much longer than we need. It's so long, and what's it? It feels like it should be a lot quicker because they're going faster than anything could move. Because C.S. Lewis gives this description, which I think is really funny. He goes, "Have you ever ridden a horse?" And he goes, "It was kind of like that." And then he proceeds to be like, "But." Take away all of the aspects of horse riding. Uh, there's no hooves. There's no jingling of the, like, you know, anything going on. There's no, uh, like, horse mane flying back in the wind. Uh, there's, and it's twice as fast as a racehorse. Uh, and this mount never grows tired. So it's nothing like riding a horse. Other than the Have you ever ridden a somewhere. horse? Well, it's kind of <laughs> like a car. It's kind of like driving a car. <laughs> it's... It's like, why would you even mention this? Like the fact, it's like it's like riding a horse, except in all of the important ways, like riding a horse. Uh, yeah. Which honestly, whatever. at this point, I'm not surprised that everyone is pretty much dead when they get to the battle at the end of next chapter. Yeah, because you know, like if they had only showed up a little faster, maybe they would have saved people. But no, gotta romp around a little bit. Like no one's ever romped uh, in Narnia. And so they travel for hours, they get to the witch's house, and then Aslan jumps slash maybe flies, it's unclear, Look. right into the courtyard with all the, the statues. The old Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe movie got is it from somewhere. amazing. I, I don't know if any viewer, or any listener to this podcast has viewed that old movie. Not the, not the one from the early thousands, but like... 1970s 80s it is a like animatronic aslan like literally flying across narnia and it's, it's awesome beautiful. it's it's, so, it's so lovely it really teaches you uh the you know allegory of christ because as our friend michael scott would say he is the son of god he has the power to heal leopards he has the power of flight I mean, He's Jesus Christ. It's true. Jesus Christ superstar. <laughs> but 
They jump into the middle of the statue full of courtyards, or the courtyards filled with statues, and the chapter ends. Uh, Chase, do you have anything else before you'd like to dive into further up and further in? I mean, I think I'd like to leap in over the wall. I, I, maybe you should fly right into your really, really sad further and further. All right. So my further up and further in, uh, as Kel said, so sad, uh, is about grief in children's storytelling. So like we mentioned earlier, there's this moment in this chapter where the author, Lewis, takes an aside and says, I hope no one who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night. But if you have been, if you've been up all night and cried till you have no more tears left in you, you will know that there comes in the end a sort of quietness. You feel as if nothing was ever going to happen again. At any rate, that was how it felt to these two. And like we said, this feels really real for a children's book. Like this is the kind of self-aware observation that is heavy when you drop it on an adult, let alone a child. If you're not the sort of person who reads children's literature very often, you may think that, and you may think this feels odd to have in a book targeted at this audience. This is the point where I wanted to put on my education degree hat for a second, where I have had to study children's lit and think about childhood education far more than I will ever use in my real life. Uh, but just wanted to bring some understanding here. One of the goals in children's literature is to help children understand the categories and emotions of everyday life. It's to help them have better, more built-out way of understanding the world around them. And a lot of the more thoughtful children's stories work to bring in emotions like anger and grief to help kids know how to process those things in healthy ways. So in that way, Lewis is actually way ahead of his time in the stone. Like it, it was not normal in this era to be that aware of this. It's, it's a much more modern thing. But even think about Mr. Rogers. Like he was the model for thoughtful children's programming. He knew how to take the craziness and problems of the real world and make them accessible for children in a uh, in a like real meaningful way. So Lewis stops the story here. He pulls the reader out of it to let us know that sometimes we feel a hurt that hurts so bad that we stop feeling for a while. And that's normal. He doesn't comment on it. He doesn't moralize it. He says, this is a way that people feel when something this tragic happens. And that's okay. And that's what Lucy and Susan felt. To put the Christian hat back on, like we said earlier, we don't always include these emotions whenever we tell the story of Jesus. But how much richer is the resurrection when you know how much the death actually stings? And I think that is one of the sweet things that comes out of this chapter. Yeah, that's really good. I, I love this conversation about just grief and depression and, and really like actualizing it. It's really sweet. My further up and further in is, uh, you know, continuing this this theological allegory that we have uh, in, in this in the end of this book, and that's with the veil slash stone table being split into two. Uh, for those of you who are listening and, and you know were maybe wondering why it was significant that the stone table is not just you know it, it, like Aslan doesn't just resurrect, but there is a legitimate breaking 
of the stone table into two parts. Uh, it wasn't because it was just, you know, cool imagery. It was uh, giving a direct allegory to the veil uh, in, that is being torn uh, in the, you know, temple that uh, was in Jerusalem. So in Jewish, uh, you know, history in the temple that was made, there was a section of the temple that was the Holy of Holies. It was a small uh, area of the temple where that was where God's presence was. That's where it existed. And it was separated from the rest of the temple by a veil uh, that only the high priest could go into once a year to make an offering for sin. Uh, Now, when Jesus died on the cross, what he was doing was fulfilling this sacrificial quota forever. There was no need to uh, you know, go into the Holy of Holies to make this offering and sacrifice anymore because Jesus had made it once for all and it was uh, forever perfect. So when this happens, the veil that separates God's presence from the temple and from the rest of the world is torn in two from uh, the top to the bottom. And so it was not torn by human hands. It was not done by anything other than a supernatural cause. Uh, and what this signifies is, yes, the you know sacrificial system was ended, but also that the presence of God was now available to anyone who was with Jesus, that uh, you, you, you did not have to be the you know high priest and enter into the Holy of Holies to have access to the presence of God. But anyone who Jesus, uh, who, who called out to the name of Jesus, who uh, who believes in him, his name and confesses it. Uh, would have access to the presence of God, the spirit of God. And that's a, you know, a continuation of this very, uh, this very like principle is going to be continued in the next chapter. Uh, And I think that's really, really important. And that's going to be my further up and further in for the next chapter. But I think it's really cool how he is, you know, sprinkling in these really important theological concepts into this book i just wish he had taken more time to do so true but we'll chase cal we've leaped over this podcast boy have we and into now that reviews now that we've romped around and you know had such a romp as never was had in any podcast let me tell you about where you can find the courtyard filled with reviews and and where to find the statues that are our podcast, uh, because they're forever frozen in time, but not frozen in a playback. So you can find our, you can find our uh, our podcast anywhere that you find podcasts: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere. Uh, please, uh, if you can, please leave a uh, five star rating and review. It really helps us being found by other listeners and people who are near the podcast. If you'd like to share this with any of your friends, if you think, "Wow, Jason Kell really are cynical." Uh, and they love talking crap about C.S. Lewis, and that's something that's appealing to you. Please share it with your friends because uh, we'd love to be able to, uh, you know, be able to talk about these things with more people. And if you'd love to interact with us, uh, follow us on Instagram at at the Chronicles of Podcasts. Uh, you know, help us uh, reach more people. Leave a comment for us. Things that you might want to hear, especially as we approach the next book uh, and as we are ending this one. Uh, but in the meantime, Chase, uh, I feel. As if I'm going to roar. So you better close your ears, you two listeners. Because before, because when I roar, it's going to be pretty impressive. Are you ready? Meow.
I got nothing. I'm so glad that you thought to do that as well, because as you were building that up, everything in my mind was like, there needs to be a meow at the end of this. Uh, that was all I wanted to do. I so was, solid. I hope, I hope people actually stick around long enough to hear the meow and they haven't checked out way before then.